Why is the mainstream press marginalizing stories about FBI racial profiling of black identity activists and other critical stories in the public interest? Are financial bubbles building over the last several years about to burst in 2019? What are the prospects of a military conflict breaking out in 2019, and how might popular or other pressures prevent such conflicts? What did 2018 teach us about the state of the U.S. empire and the threat it poses to its major power rivals? On this week's Global Research News Hour, as we debut in 2019, we pause to take a look at the most important and underreported stories of the past year and project ahead to what they bode for the coming year. Our first guest, Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored, presents his organization's list of underreported and suppressed stories from the past year. Later, we get perspectives on the economic, geostrategic, and geopolitical fronts from analysts Jack Rasmus, Rick Rosoff, and Dmitry Orlov. On this week's program, reviewing the most significant stories of 2018 and projections for 2019. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 4th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation, and the historical territory of the Nihiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The West has besieged, starved, and deprived the Syrian people of humanitarian aid while pouring aid into the areas controlled by the extremist sectarian proxy armies. The West has violated international law and it has enabled the destruction of Syria's history, heritage, and cultural footprint. The West has behaved as a collective rogue state, without conscience and without pity for a people its media has systematically dehumanized to enable such a crime to take place. Despite this war of attrition and despite battling disproportionate force, the Syrian people have refused to capitulate or to abandon their secularism in favor of an extremist tyranny that would destroy their society and persecute the minority communities into extinction. Christmas 2018 has demonstrated the victory of Syrian unity over the regime change project incubated in the West, which is now a failed campaign lying in tatters at the feet of the self-determination of the Syrian people, the valiant defense by the Syrian Arab army, and the steadfastness of the Syrian government and its president, Bashar al-Assad. That comes from the article, Syria, the Western Rogue States must confess their crimes against humanity and be held accountable, by Vanessa Beely, posted January 3rd, originally published at 21st Century Wire. (music) Harry Truman never expressed regret publicly over his decision to use the atomic bombs. However, he did order an independent study on the state of the war effort leading up to August of 1945 and the strategic value of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. In 1946, the U.S. Bombing Survey published its findings, which concluded as follows, quote, 
based on a detailed investigation of all the facts and supported by the testimony of the surviving Japanese leaders involved, it is the survey's opinion that certainly prior to 31st of December 1945, and in all probability prior to 1st of November 1945, Japan would have surrendered even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped, even if Russia had not entered the war, and even if no invasion had been planned or contemplated, unquote. This is an intensive condemnation of Truman's decision, seeing as Russia did enter the war and that plans for an invasion had been developed. That comes from the article, The Atomic Bombing of Japan, Reconsidered, by Alan Mosley, posted January 3rd, originally appearing at Mises Wire. The attacks on Trump are mainly justified on the pretext of protecting the U.S. allies, the Kurds, from possible extermination by the Turks. Other analysts dare to repeat the absurd U.S. mantra that ISIS has between 20,000 and 30,000 militants in Syria and Iraq to justify the continuous occupation of northeast Syria. If these arguments were not enough, others claim that Trump would be delivering the north of Syria to Iranian and Russian scarecrows or that he would be facilitating the Iranian-Baghdad-Damascus-Beirut connection. Trump remains determined to pull out despite his allies, Israel, France, and the UK, begging him to stay longer in the Levant. No delay will change the fate of Al-Hasaka province or the unfolding course of events. 2019 will mark the return of the northeast province to the control of the Syria government forces. Turkey is choosing its camp, and the Arabs, afraid of becoming orphans like the Kurds, are overwhelming Assad with their warmth, acting as though they had not been waging war on his country since 2011. That comes from the article, Trump bows to domestic pressure by delaying his withdrawal from Syria. A storm is gathering in the Levant. By Elijah J. Magnier, posted January 3rd, originally published at the author's site, ejmagnier.com. Since taking office, Macron has declared war on trade unions while pushing through enormous tax breaks for the wealthy, like himself. It was just a matter of time until the French people had enough of the country's privatization. It is only a shock to the oblivious establishment why the former Rothschild banker-turned-politician, who addressed the nation seated at a gold desk while Paris was ablaze, is suddenly in jeopardy of losing power. The status quo's incognizance is reminiscent of Marie Antoinette, who during the 18th century, when told the peasants had no bread, famously replied, let them eat cake, as the masses starved under her husband, Louis XIV. While the media's conspicuous blackout of coverage is partly to blame, the deafening silence from across the Atlantic in the United States is really because of the lack of class consciousness on its political left. With the exception of Occupy Wall Street, the American left has been so preoccupied with an endless race to the bottom in the two-party culture wars, it is unable to comprehend an upheaval undivided by the contaminants of identity politics. That comes from the article, Why France's Yellow Vest Protests Have Been Ignored by the Resistance in the U.S., by Max Perry, posted January 3rd. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
Founded in 1976, Project Censored is a media research program working in cooperation with numerous independent media groups in the U.S. with the principal objective of training of university students in media research and First Amendment issues and the advocacy for and protection of free press rights in the United States. Project Censored conducts research on important national news stories that are underreported, ignored, misrepresented, or censored by the U.S. corporate media. Each year, Project Censored publishes a ranking of the top 25 most censored nationally important news stories in their yearbook, Censored Media Democracy in Action. Andy Lee Roth is the Associate Director of Project Censored. He coordinates the project's validated independent news program and has co-edited nine editions of the Censored yearbook, including uh, this year's Censored 2019, which was released just two months ago. He joins us now to discuss some of the most censored news stories of the past year. Andy, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, Michael, it's always a great uh, delight to be on the air with you. Thank you. Maybe you'd like to, to share a, a little bit more information about Project Censored. Well, uh, that was a wonderful introduction. You, you uh, uh, gave the project just there. And I, I would just say, uh, on a personal note, for me, working with the project, and I've uh, served in the associate director's role for almost ten years now. One of the uh, one of the really uh, wonderful things that makes me feel very privileged about working with the project is seeing how the um, undergraduate students that we work with uh, how they really catch fire and their enthusiasm for the mission of the project in general, and especially as we'll get into uh, this hour, I know. Uh, for beginning to dig into uh, the stories that are underreported and to see what and uh, when and how uh, there's been any corporate news coverage. That uh, When the project first began under the leadership of Carl Jensen, there were very few media watchdog organizations. And uh, happily, I think now, there are many new organizations, and you know, new since 1976, that are now doing fantastic work. But one of the distinctive... One of the hallmarks, I think, of Project Censored is our direct hands-on training in critical media literacy education for undergraduate students, and uh, that's something we're really proud of at the project, and I'm always happy to, uh, to talk about that aspect. So I, I, even as we get into some of the top 25 stories, in addition to giving shout-outs to the journalists and independent news organizations that have brought those stories forward, I may occasionally also mention the student researchers and uh, faculty mentors who have who have helped uh, us, the project, to identify and recognize these underreported stories. By all means, um, in this year's crop of stories, I noticed some themes running through the list. Uh, a couple of them deal with racial profiling in the United States. Uh, is there a specific story you think uh, best exemplifies that theme? Yeah, well, I think our number 10 story this year is on how the FBI has been profiling so-called black identity extremists. extremists, And that, that is, I think, just straight uh, in line with the theme that you're talking about. So this is a story that's been reported in outlets like Foreign Policy, on Democracy Now!, in Mother Jones, and tracked by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and basically, uh, going back to uh, August of 2017, uh, the Counterterrorism Division of the Federal Bureau of Investigation was issued an intelligence assessment that was warning uh, law enforcement officers across the country, so 
you know, community and city police departments, as well as the Department of Homeland Security, of the danger of, of quote, black identity extremists. Um, and so the, the, ac- the acronym that the report used, BIE, um, uh, described, uh, as, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, a conglomeration of black nationalists, black supremacists, black separatists, and other disaffiliated uh, racist individuals who are anti-police, anti-white, and seeking to rectify perceived social injustices. Um, so the FBI was, uh, uh, at the time, Southern Poverty Law Center noted that the FBI was, in fact, taking some heat from uh, academics, former government officials, for the use of the black identity extremist term, but they appeared to be continuing to use it. Um, and that's a story that, uh, you know, as, as we've brought it out this year, um, there, there uh, you know, when we, when we were considering it in this year's cycle for inclusion, I thought, well, there's no way that story is going to continue to be underreported in the corporate press. But uh, as we concluded our final reviews, we found um, that coverage of this, of this uh was pretty limited. Uh, the New York Times uh, ran an opinion piece on it, and uh, the Fox News had a ninety uh, a ninety nine second uh, uh, clip um, several months after the initial report in the independent press had been made. So it was, it, this is truly, um, uh, I think, a significant story that has not been well covered in the corporate press. It's been uh, marginalized there. In the last couple of years, we've seen more incidents of of white nationalism and uh, you know I, I think you sort of see a, a bit of a conflation there that uh, mm-hmm. is very worrying that it could just rope in a whole bunch of individuals that are uh, you know quite uh, you know benignly uh, you know basically challenging some of the excesses of the state I think this is one of those stories that for all, uh, for anyone who argues that the United States is now a post-racial society and uh, you know, uh, we have as official policy, we no longer really need the, the uh, you know, civil rights era voting protections and so forth. Um, I think this kind of story is just a direct counter to those sorts of assertions, right? The, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, um, federal agency is is profiling along these lines. And of course, we know without without going getting down into the, the, to the weeds now, a long history um of difficulties uh, around issues of, of race and ethnicity and in terms of policing in the United States and, uh, and particularly by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. In a, in a related um, theme, I, I see stories that delve into uh, intelligence abuses and the state's incursion into privacy rights. Um, could you mention, maybe mention one or two of the, the stories that really stand out for you in that regard? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple here uh, in our top 25 this list this this year. Uh, one of those is uh, our number 14 story is how the FBI, continuing our theme, how the FBI paid um, Geek Squad employees as confidential human source informants. And the Geek Squad is uh, kind of a, a, a subsidiary operation of the company Best Buy, um, and another another of those stories, so they do computer repair and computer service, and they were actually turning over uh, customers' 
uh, you know, data to uh, FBI agents in certain cases. Uh, the other one, though, that I think is even more massive in some ways is um, the passage of the Cloud Act um, in early February of this year. The Cloud Act was the clarif- is the Clarifying Lawful Overseas Use of Data Act, and it enables the U.S. government to acquire data across international boundaries, regardless of other nations' data privacy laws and without the need for warrants. Um, and the Cloud Act was subject um, to almost no deliberation at all in, the, in Congress. Uh, as the Electronic Frontier Foundation's David Ruiz uh, wrote in his report on the passage of the Cloud Act, Congress had a, quote, professional responsibility to debate the merits and concerns of this proposal amongst themselves, and this week they failed, he, he, he reported at the time of the Act's passage. So the Cloud Act specifically uh, created exceptions to uh, previous existing laws uh, that protected constitutional rights in the digital age. Um, and again, there was little to no corporate news coverage of the Cloud Act as we reviewed this story for inclusion in this year's list. The Washington Post ran a, an opinion piece on it um, that was basically positive, saying that it was a promising solution to allow U.S. Uh, in for- law enforcement access U.S. company data stored overseas, but not mentioning any of the potential risks to the privacy of citizens' personal data. And, and so I, I, I should backtrack a moment and say when we're talking about accessing uh, data, uh, the kinds of things we're talking about, this, this may sound, uh, we may be blasé about this, but I think we have to steel ourselves and continue to be concerned and, and outraged about this kind of thing. The Cloud Act specifically gives U.S. and foreign police new mechanisms for seizing data that include things like private emails, online chats, social media posts, videos on Snapchat, and the like. Yeah. Um, so this is the you know this is the heart and soul of uh, of modern communication, uh, uh, whether it's you know uh, talking to our loved ones uh, online from a distance or just uh, texting where I'm going to meet you uh, when we get off of work later today, um, that kind of information is uh, even more available now than it was uh, uh, before the Cloud Act. Yeah. I mean, there's a, yeah, I've noticed that sort of uh, big brother uh, kind of theme uh, running through through quite a few of these. I think another one is the number two story, open source intelligence secrets sold to highest bidders, which, again, I think that, uh, you know, speaks to the uh, the level of uh, power that uh, the intelligence secrets and, and effectively being privatized as well, which is even doubly concerning. Um, I want to move on to uh, another theme. There are some very positive stories here uh, that, uh, that have not... They're, again, that they're, are not getting a lot of attention in the corporate press. Yeah, I think uh, uh, the the dearth of, of good news in the corporate press may be the, that good news stories in a in a in a serious sense of the term may be the most underreported, most censored stories in the corporate press. Uh, and there are now movements afoot that we highlight in our. Um, number 13 story this year, the limits of negative news and the importance of constructive media. There are movements afoot to really put an emphasis on good news stories that are not good news in the kind of, um, 
you know, oh, at the end of the TV news hour, we have a, a short clip on the firefighters showing up to help pull the cat down from the tree after it was stuck. What we mean when we talk about good news stories are substantive uh, stories about communities coming together in order to solve problems that they face. Several of these stories originate in our top 25 list this year, originate um, from uh, the work of uh, Professor Ken Burroughs at San Francisco State University and his students who are uh, really uh, spearheading uh, that in the project kind of a, a movement towards uh, this constructive media solutions-focused journalism. And so let me give an example of, of one of those stories uh, from this year's top 25 list. Our number 15 story is on digital justice and how Internet cooperatives are resisting net neutrality rollbacks. And uh, let me just get my book open here so I can give the proper sites, proper credit where it's due. So uh, this is a story that Amber Yang uh, at San Francisco State uh, University researched. And the original reports uh, originate with Motherboard, which is uh, one of the vice uh, uh, subsidiaries, and Yes Magazine, which is a fantastic and has been a pioneer for decades now of uh, solutions-oriented journalism. And so um, the, the, the heart of the story here is that there are uh, nearly 300 electric, electric cooperatives across the United States that are beginning to uh, construct their own Internet um, with high-speed access. And in doing so, they're doing things that uh, both the marketplace and uh, federal governments have, have not shown themselves to be uh, up to doing, um, protecting a free and open Internet uh, and uh, making that uh, inter- fast, affordable Internet accessible to everyone, narrowing the digital divide, as we've come to hear, uh, talk about it. And uh, one of the greatest examples of this is taking place in Detroit, I think, where The problem uh, is that in Detroit, approximately 40% of the population has no access of any kind to the Internet. Um, Because of Detroit's economic woes, many of the big telecom companies have not not found it worthwhile to invest in expanding their networks in those communities. And so in response, um, uh, a growing kind of collective of Detroit residents uh, organized under a grassroots movement called the Equitable Internet Initiative, and began uh, learning how to um, how to how to build and maintain uh, 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 the infrastructure necessary for internet access. And they are now uh, doing that. Uh, residents receive uh, somewhere in the ballpark, I believe it is, of 20 hours of training that prepares them to do everything from install connections to troubleshooting them and maintaining the network from end to end. So this is an incredible success story. And again, uh, as we went to press, uh, as the censored 2019 book went to press, uh, we found that there had been literally no coverage of this topic except for a single article in August of 2016 in the New York Times that reported on... um, one community in Oklahoma where this was happening. Mm. So this is one of those ones I sometimes like to ask the students in my sociology classes where we focus on media issues uh, for at least part of the semester to ask, well, why might a story like this not have been covered in the corporate press? And when you think about it, uh, the answer here is, uh, although we don't know the answer uh, for certain, I think, you know, it's possible to hypothesize that 
Uh, well, it's not in the corporate uh, media's interest to have it widely known that uh, it's possible to build these things from the ground up without, um, without uh, reliance on other corporate entities. So Internet access is fundamental uh, in this digital age. It's, it's, I think it's essential to being an engaged community member and an active citizen. Um, and, but what this story about Internet co-ops resisting net neutrality rollbacks uh, highlights is that we don't have to be dependent on corporate entities to have that crucial access. Andy, I'm glad you brought up that point about uh, the reasons why corporate media, because that's something you do with every single one of these stories. I mean, you not only state the story, but you also mention the uh, the level of suppression for uh, uh, you know th that's taking place in the corporate media. So that that stands that aspect stands out. Uh, there are a number of other great stories here. There's 25 in all, as of course. Uh, you've got uh, the uh, number 22 story uh, that uh, basically relates to how big pharma's, uh, what they call biostitutes, uh, corporate media's ignoring of the root cause of the opioid crisis, uh, a story about uh, ICE, uh, the uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, actually destroying the, the records of uh, inhumane treatment of immigrants. Uh, I've got a story about, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. Air Force seeking to control 70% of Nevada's Desert National wild, Wildlife Refuge and uh, indigenous communities around the world helping to win legal rights of nature. Uh, the Washington Post banning employees from using social media to criticize sponsors. Um, so you can get access to all of this. I mean, the, the stories are actually printed at projectcensored.org, which is the uh, center's website. Uh, but uh, we're, seeing as we're starting to run low on time, I wanted to, you, and to give you a chance, Andy, to talk about uh, the, the book itself, uh, Censored 2019. The subtitle is Fighting the Fake News Invasion. Could, could you maybe just say a few words about what, uh, what's in this issue, why, why you selected that theme and, uh, and, and yeah. you know, some of the other features in that issue? So first, our, our theme is Fighting the Fake News Invasion, and we're picking up on the theme of um, our, uh, the, the month the book came out was also the 80th anniversary of the famous um, uh, War of the Worlds broadcast uh, over CBS radio in 1938 that, that uh, ostensibly, uh, in, in legend and myth, led to widespread panic across the U.S. that people took the, the dramatic uh, radio uh, broadcast of the War of the Worlds invasion of the Earth by Martians as if it were true and not simply a radio drama for entertainment. And uh, as Mickey Huff, uh, the project's director, my co-editor for this year's book, and I began to dig into that history, the kind of the unknown history of that is that, well, there wasn't really widespread panic. Um, in fact, um, uh, research done shortly after the broadcast in the years following found that most people used their common sense. And when they heard what sounded like a Martian invasion, they checked other radio stations, they called neighbors, and they determined that no, this was this was not a real invasion. It was a it was a radio uh, program. The idea of fake news, much like the Martian invasion in the War of the Worlds broadcast, has has taken on a kind of life of its own. And so, a lot of the book is focused around well, how do we know uh, real news when we come across it? Right? What should news do for us? At you know, at its best. Uh, 
journalism puts news into context, it investigates, it verifies, it analyzes, explains, it engages. It uses news judgment that's oriented to a public interest. We have our usual features, as we do every year, on, on junk food news, the kinds of stories that the corporate media tend to feed us instead of the substantive news stories that we need to know. Um, we have, uh, and if time allows, I'd love to come back and say a little bit more about junk food news. Um, we have our annual feature on news abuse, so uh, analysis of news stories that are in some sense important, unlike their junk food counterparts, um, but that are so spun that the significance of the story is lost. We have a host of great chapters that round out the book, um, everything from a comparative analysis of how free speech rights uh, on uh, college and university campuses in the United Kingdom compare with those in the U.S. Um, we have a very timely chapter on uh, the Me Too movement from Julie Frechette, one of our regular contributors. Um, Data Activism Through Community Mapping uh, by Dorothy Kidd uh, at University of San Francisco is looking at how, um, you know, we hear a lot about big data and it often fits in the, in the vein of what we were discussing earlier, um, you know, intrusions on privacy. But she looks at how people, communities are, uh, or organizations are using um, the tools of big data um, to, to build community and to map alternatives to um, um, environmentally destructive projects and whatnot. People can get uh, access, can get the book, uh, go to the website, and uh, and can order it there, I suppose. And of course, you have all your top twenty-five listed at the site. So, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Michael. It's always a pleasure. Okay, and happy New Year. We were just speaking with Andy Lee Roth. He is an associate director of Project Censored and co-editor of Project Censored's latest yearbook, Censored 2019, Fighting the Fake News Invasion. He joined us from Seattle. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Dr. Jack Rasmus teaches economics and politics at St. Mary's College in California. He hosts the program Alternative Visions every Friday at 2 p.m. on Progressive Radio Network and blogs at jackrasmus.com. His books include Central Bankers at the End of Their Rope, as well as the upcoming The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Policy from Reagan to Trump. Dr. Rasmus, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Glad um, to be here. Now, there's been some volatility in the stock market as 2018 came to a close. What were the fundamentals underlying the current global economy, and, and what were the main events in 2018 that affected those fundamentals? Well, you've got to look back uh, before 2018, because they simply came to a head in 2018. Uh, the stock markets, particularly the U.S. Uh, and other stock markets, um, have been inflated here. We've had a bubble them. Uh, why? Well, the demand for stocks uh, has been growing, uh, you know, accelerating since 2010. Well, one step further, why the demand for stocks? Well, because primarily um, uh, businesses and investors have been, uh, had trillions of dollars thrown at them, uh, which they've then uh, funneled into financial asset markets not only stock markets, but bond markets, foreign exchange markets, derivative markets, and so forth. Well, where does this money come from? Well, it's uh, mostly uh, 
been made possible by massive tax cuts uh, on the fiscal side and free money on the monetary side. You know, we had the, the Fed, the central bank, and other central banks in the world follow suit, uh, providing virtually free money here for uh, for years, up until 2017. Uh, and that free money, uh, businesses and investors have been borrowing it for virtually nothing, and then reinvesting it primarily in, in stocks. Uh, a good example is how corporations uh, borrow money by issuing bonds and commercial paper, and then they use that money um, to provide uh, uh, stock buybacks and uh, uh, dividend payouts to the shareholders. Over a trillion dollars in the U.S. alone every year for seven years has gone into stock buybacks and dividend payouts. And those investors, corporations and their private investors, have then just turned that money around and largely funneled it into financial markets, both in the U.S. and offshore. Uh, to some extent, maybe a little bit into real real assets, producing real goods and services, but mostly into financial asset markets in the U.S., stock markets, bond markets, derivatives, etc. cetera. Uh, and that's what's driven uh, the stocks up. There's trillion dollars a year buybacks and dividend payouts, <clears throat> and in this year, it will be a record $1.3 trillion, okay. at least. At least. So that's what's driven the, the stock price bubbles. Uh, on top of that, uh, you have the Trump tax cuts, uh, which are really about $4.5 trillion in tax cuts over a decade to investors and corporations and businesses. You see, it's not $1.5 trillion, it's $4.5 trillion, offset by tax hikes on the middle class and phony assumptions about economic growth uh, that bring it down to the reported $1.5 trillion. But it's really... You know, the rich are really getting $4 trillion plus in their pockets. That's boosted corporate profits this year uh, between 22 and 27%. And most of that windfall to the bottom line from the Trump tax cuts to businesses and investors has gone into the stock market that gave this uh, extra what, 15%, whatever, uh, top, artificial top to the stock market here this year. But all that came to an end. In, uh, in October, because the prices just can't keep rising for, for no reason. Uh, and it looks uh, like, uh, you know, other problems in the global economy and the U.S. economy began to take precedence in investors' minds that, oh, you know, this show can't continue and won't continue in 2019. Uh, so let's take our money and run. Uh, let's cash out in the stock market move to the sidelines, and that's what's happening, and that's why the stock market is now in, in retreat, so not only in the U.S., but globally. So are we then looking at a, something of a repeat of 2008, uh, that, that crisis? When we see the bubble burst, is it going to look like uh, 2008 all over again? Well, not exactly, uh, because 2008, uh, a lot of the money went into uh, financial assets associated with the housing sector, you know, all the derivatives built upon the housing sector. Uh, mortgage-backed securities, commercial mortgage-backed securities, CDO, CDSs, all that kind of stuff. You see, the crash was not simply a subprime um, mortgage crash, housing crash. It was uh, the derivatives markets built upon that uh, that crashed. Uh, that's really what, what did in uh, these investment banks and AIG and, and so forth. Uh, it wasn't wasn't the, the subprime borrower simply or, or totally. Well, we don't have... The derivatives built upon uh, housing here, 
So it will be different this time. Uh, but we have massive derivative markets that are built upon non-financial corporations. So I think the crisis will, will come more from non-financial corporations. And you can see canaries in the, in the coal mine here, uh, companies like General Electric, right, in deep, deep trouble, massive company, and others like them, uh, companies that have loaded up on a junk bond and what's called the junk investment grade, triple B bond debt, uh, leverage loans for mergers and acquisitions. These are the new areas, and in the stock market, uh, uh, investors have piled into what's called exchange-traded funds, which is the new derivatives and indexed uh, trading and so forth. Uh, so it's, 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 uh, it's similar, uh, but the form it's taking is going to be different. I think it's going to be non-financial corporation problems, which make it look more like uh, uh, 2000, 2001, and overlaid on all this uh, globally a currency crisis and collapse of uh, currencies, uh, particularly in emerging markets. We see this already emerging, you know, Argentina, Turkey, places like that. That's going to continue. Uh, so, it, and that's more like the late 1990s, the Asian meltdown. Uh, we have a global uh, manufacturing recession now underway. Uh, the PMI, manufacturing PMI, is coming out of China and Europe, and now in the U.S., show a contraction of manufacturing uh, going on. We already have a construction housing sector in many places in the world uh, flattening and declining. Uh, China is slowing down. Its general growth is slowing down which means emerging markets everywhere are going to be impacted, uh, not only by rising U.S. rates, but by uh, uh, China slowing its purchases down. Uh, the uh, EU is stagnating. Uh, Germany, now France, PMIs are, are negative. Japan's in recession. Uh, commodities are collapsing uh, everywhere in terms of price. So uh, we have a, glo uh, a global economy that is uh, uh, tripping by sector by sector slowly. It's a slow roll. Uh, kind of going on, but uh, very clearly the real economy globally is slowing, and that's why we have collapsing oil and commodity prices, by the way. People don't realize that. It's the financial reason uh, why uh, fracking U.S. is pumping more and more global oil, which drops the uh, price of oil. And OPEC and Russia are trying to cut production, but that won't work. Uh, so, uh, you know, global oil, uh, which is a financial asset, it's not just a commodity, is, uh, is collapsing along with copper and all these other commodities. So you got this scenario globally of uh, financial asset bubbles deflating and uh, prices falling uh, and a real economy already slowing. And the question is going to be, uh, how will the two uh, sectors, the financial sector and the real economy, uh, interact and exacerbate each other going, going forward? Dr. Jack Rasmus teaches economics and politics at St. Mary's College in California. Listeners can check out more of his insights into the global economy as it goes into 2019 by visiting his site, jackrasmus.com. Joining us now to discuss some of the flashpoints for war and military conflict emerging over the course of the last year, we're joined by Rick Rosoff. He's an investigative journalist, an anti-war activist, and manages the Stop NATO Listserv. Thanks for joining us, joining us, Rick. 
Yeah, thank you once again, Michael, for having me, and Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Yes, thank you. Um, Rick, we began the year 2018 with U.S. saber-rattling over North Korea and ended the year with Trump pulling troops or proclaiming that he'll be pulling troops out of Syria. Uh, There's been an arms race between the U.S. and Russia that's become re-energized. Uh, NATO troops are continuing exercises proximate to the Russian border. Uh, there is an apparent provocation by Ukraine forces in the Sea of Azov in late November. Uh, suggestions of military intervention in Venezuela. Um, what would you say have been the key geostrategic developments of the last year in terms of implications for future conflict? You know, I wish I could condense that uh, succinctly <laughs> and convincingly. Uh, I think what we're seeing is a, a certain interplay between uh, continuity and discontinuity, between uh, organized and chaotic developments. Uh, and we can only judge, of course, in many instances by what we see on the surface. For example, a year ago, I don't believe anyone I know at any rate, uh, would have anticipated what appears to have been a nuclear deal uh, between the U.S., North, and South Korea. And whatever ultimately the results of that arrangement uh, become, uh, it's something we could not have predicted. I, I certainly didn't see it on the horizon. The worsening, uh, you know, the catastrophic uh, worsening of the war against the Houthi and other citizens in, in Yemen is a blot on the conscience of humanity, and it is, it's, it's the tale of uh, 2018. There's no question about it. And the fact that the world sits back for the most part and allows, if not uh, supports, uh, this catastrophe, I think, is, uh, is an indication of how far we have to go to awaken global consciousness to the need for peace and the, the total inadmissibility of military aggression of the sort that U.S. military clients, Saudi Arabia, is perpetrating in Yemen. That has to be the outstanding issue, as it was the preceding year, you know, 2017. Uh, you're correct to mention the provocation in the uh, Sea of Azov near the Kerch Strait, which shows just how um, instantaneously and unpredictably a crisis of this sort can emerge. This is, could similarly happen elsewhere in the Black Sea, in the Baltic Sea, and else, elsewhere vis-a-vis the U.S. and its NATO allies on one hand and Russia on the other. Uh, we're also seeing, um, I don't know how to put it, the moving of uh, second-tier uh, military powers into uh, positions of um, you know, some tactical uh, importance at this point, Israel, of course, Saudi Arabia is mentioned in Yemen and elsewhere in the Persian Gulf, uh, Turkey, surely now, and in Syria, and, uh, and other powers of that sort. But if you know that these are all more or less in the old world, we're not seeing as, as much in the way of direct military confrontation as one might have expected in East Asia, uh, Far East Asia in the first place. Uh, and you do mention Venezuela. It's a very real threat, you know, particularly after the provocative uh, comments of John Bolton a few months ago about a so-called troika of tyranny, where he singled out Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, you know, clearly uh, with hostile intent. Uh, so we have a situation where uh, explosions can erupt, uh, you know, most any place, any time, uh, and it's, it's hard to be uh, comprehensive in anticipation of, uh, you know, what can happen. But I think, uh, you know, the... Uh, the uh, war of attrition and the war against the people of Yemen is got to be our overriding concern at this point. And we have to hold the three major culprits responsible, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia in the first place, and certainly with the connivance of Israel. Yeah. So what do you see 
than uh, in terms of uh, forces that might constrain uh, some of the military aggression. I mean, there's the peace movements such as there there are, but I might might there other be other forces at work that uh, might stay the hand of uh, of, of u s and and NATO aggression. That's a discussion we've had a couple of times, at least in the past, and I wish I could be more optimistic about it. I happen to be reading, I recommend it to your readers, the government of India actually has published a almost 700-page volume of the correspondence of Mohandas, Mahatma Gandhi, and Romain Rolland, the French novelist and writer, Nobel recipient in literature, Nobel Literature Prize recipient. Uh, and it goes through the 1920s and 30s, and they're dealing with precisely these kinds of questions. Uh, how do you stop war before it begins? For example, there's a debate between Gandhi and Einstein in the 20s on that topic. Einstein talks about uh, you know, non-cooperation or uh, passive non-resistance once the war is underway, and Gandhi and certainly Rolland are arguing it has to be a, uh, an anticipatory and systematic approach to delegitimizing the role of the military and, to, to a large extent, the state per qua state uh, so that these developments don't come. We need that sort of orientation, pure and simple. There's no way we can react uh, ad hoc and um, ex post facto to every act of military aggression. We need to have an active global understanding that uh, political and economic differences are not settled by military means, period. And there are no exceptions, uh, particularly when so-called humanitarian justifications are evoked. Uh, that's the sort of mindset the world needs. I mean, I know that sounds grandiose, but uh, you, we cannot patch together a series of local friends of this a piece in this community or that neighborhood and so forth and not have a global consciousness that we need to demilitarize the globe. I mean, the amount of savings, the trillions of dollars per annum spent on developing the capacity to kill people and destroy things, uh, if routed into more humane directions, could eliminate a lot of the root causes, you know, economic and, and social and so forth, that give rise to conflict. So we need to have a uh, global uh, pro-peace, I, I would argue, as much as anti-war uh, orientation, consciousness, and movement. Do you see any possible schisms within the NATO alliance that, uh, I mean, Turkey for being a pretty much an obvious example that that, that could, uh, you know, fall, cause the war machine to kind of fall apart internally. There, I have been thinking about that also. It's good of you to point it out. That uh, I'll tell you, ironically enough, it will not be uh, immediately within the context of NATO. It will be uh, within the bilateral, degeneration of bilateral ties between Turkey and Israel. And that uh, the fact that NATO will not tolerate a member uh, being hostile to Israel, of course, which I've always argued is effectively the 30th member of NATO. It's the only state outside of Europe, for example, that's uh, within the um, uh, area of responsibility of U.S. European Command. And the top military commander of European Command is also the top military commander of NATO, so it's uh, coterminous or overlapping. Uh, I think the fact that there's an exacerbation of tensions between uh, Ankara and Tel Aviv will lead to uh, Turkey being reappraised in NATO headquarters uh, and seen as an unreliable ally. So that's a possibility, but I wouldn't anticipate much in that response. Uh, we've seen, for example, you know, major uh, uh, electoral 
uh, shifts in Europe, both to the left and the right, you know, Syriza and Greece and Viktor Orban and company in Hungary and uh, uh, the Italian experience recently. And oftentimes there's an anti-EU perspective, but there never seems to be uh, an articulated anti-NATO perspective. Very interesting, in my opinion. But uh, the, I can't imagine somebody withdrawing from the EU and not from its, if you will, sister organization, NATO, but this is what the discussion is. So uh, can there be domestic political changes through elections in European countries that lead to con uh, uh, administrations talking about withdrawing from NATO? It's possible. But I think it's very remarkable that the, the very issue has not even been raised. Hmm. Well, Rick, you know, it's a testimony to the omnipotence of NATO. <laughs> Rick, I'm afraid we have to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for uh, shedding, sharing your insights with our audience. Yeah, thank you, Michael, for having me. We've been joined by Rick Rosoff, a journalist and anti-war activist and manager of the Stop NATO Listserv. You can find his article, many of his articles appearing on the Global Research website. Dmitry Orlov is a writer and geopolitical analyst based in Moscow. He's the author of Reinventing Collapse, the Soviet Experience and American Prospects, and Shrinking the Technosphere, Getting a Grip on the Technologies that Limit Our Autonomy, Self-Sufficiency, and Freedom. He blogs at cluborloff.blogspot.com. We're looking back at the year 2018, and uh, major media typically distracts us from the most important stories, which will have a bearing on the lives of average people, you know, Trump's idiosyncrasies and such. But what do you think are the international developments of the last year that we should be most focused on? Well, you're absolutely right that the only thing that the mass media seems to be paying attention to is palace intrigue, if you will. And that is something that is very indicative of empires as, as they're about to collapse. They, they fo focus inward and they believe that they're the most important thing happening, even though they're being ignored. But the two things that have happened over the past year that have just completely changed the landscape, you know, the first thing is that the, the U.S. military industrial complex has been neutralized. Uh, it is now useless. Uh, the, the whole idea of uh, uh, being able to launch a, a a preemptive str nuclear strike against Russia, or anyone else for that matter, is pretty much out the window. The new Russian weapons, defensive and offensive, have neutralized that capability, and we, we're back to mutual assured destruction. Also, most of the military assets that the US has are no longer deployable in any conflict with a, a reasonably armed opponent, such as Russia. Uh, they, they can't use their, their latest uh, uh, jet aircraft, fighter aircraft, the F-35, they're, they're afraid to deploy anywhere near where there might be a Russian installation. Uh, their air, aircraft carriers can now be destroyed from a great distance and are now just completely, you know, basically a waste of money, sitting ducks that can't be anywhere near conflict. Um, and the rest of the U.S. military is uh, definitely now a dysfunctional organization that cannot complete any of, of its tasks or assignments or objectives. So that's one thing that happened, and, and that is uh, you know, very important. The other thing that's happened is that the world has realized that they really don't need the US dollar. As a matter of fact, they would be much better off trading in their own currencies. And this means that the wealth pump, where nations give up 
actual useful products in exchange for uh, bits of paper from from the U.S. Treasury. Um, you know that is going to pretty much evaporate, go away. So those two things added together, the fact that um, the the United States won't have all these funds to squander, and the fact that the fact that the funds are being squandered is now just completely out in the open and obvious to everyone is a bit of a game changer for the U.S. Now, looking back over 2018, do we, do we have a better understanding of the form that the collapse of the U.S. empire is going to take? Well, no, not really. It's all very murky because um, the level of political dysfunction uh, it, within the U.S. is such that that could actually uh, steal center stage for a really long time. And instead of having some sort of a, you know, a drama type of a collapse where, you know, calamitous effects are there for us to observe, instead, it'll, it'll, that will all be murky, but instead there will be this ridiculous farce going on in Washington where you just basically have people yelling past each other endlessly and, and just trying to tune out the world because they're too busy yelling at each other. I definitely see that happening. What would you say the energy resource picture looks like at the end of 2018? And how do you see that influencing the behavior of the major powers, if at all? Well, the, the two big events that I've spotted is, is one, the absolutely uh, extravagantly huge depletion rate from existing wells in, in the shale oil patch in the United States. Uh, they will have to, in order to maintain production at the same level, seriously pick up the drilling rate. And that's just not possible because they're already not making any money. They're, all of these fracking companies are sinking deeper and deeper into debt. Some of them never made any money at all. And the whole thing is looking like a swindle for all of the investors. Uh, it, it, it's a, a way of burning money to make energy for the time being. So that's definitely happening. And I don't think, think that the shale oil patch has... Uh, you know, a long time to run. It it won't run out of places to drill. You can pretty pretty much drill forever as long as there's money to continue drilling, uh, almost. But they're going to run out of credit because there's going to be a credit crunch. People won't be as as easily persuaded to lend money to companies that never made any money. So that's one giant event that will knock the United States down quite quite a few notches it'll it'll turn it back into a country that is absolutely uh, hugely dependent on on energy imports from other countries and the other thing that happened is that russia got their bn800 um uh fast breeder uh fast neutron reactor uh to to full power and is ready to make more of them the reason that's a game changer is that now all of the uranium that's been mined uh, is going to be useful as opposed to useless. Uh, you see, uranium, when it's mined, consists of 0.7% useful uranium, and the rest is just useless stuff. But there's a trick for turning it into plutonium and then using that plutonium as fuel, and that's what Russia plans to do. And and so there, the reason that is a game changer is that uh, uranium is um, going, 
it was going to be in rather short supply, at least the, the fissionable, useful uranium-235. Uh, uranium-238 is very plentiful, but up till now it's been useless. But now Russia has the potential to tap virtually limit, a limitless source of, of nuclear fuel and also a way to burn it all up so that there is no or hardly any high-level nuclear waste to dispose of at the end of this closed fuel cycle that they're introducing. And they're already building nuclear reactors all over the planet. Russia is already the preeminent nuclear power in the world as far as nuclear energy. And, and so uh, basically what that means is that if this, if this works out, it's, it's not definite whether it's going to work out, but this will give industrial civilization for better or worse a new lease on life. It won't be lights out anytime soon. Okay. Now, there's another aspect that I'm hoping you could address, and that's uh, the, the ecological uh, uh, aspects, uh, climate change, and of course that's going to have an impact on uh, you know, crops. I mean, notice that there was a major drought in, in the European Union just this past year. Uh, are there any other signs that, that you s suggest where you know, climate change and other ecological uh, impacts are going to pronounce, have an Im pronounced impact on in, in the international uh, realm and international relations? Well, uh, with climate change, um, I'm not one of those catastrophists. Uh, who think that we'll all go extinct because of it. Uh, but it will definitely change a lot of things, a lot of the living arrangements that we have right now. Uh, in one sense, with regard to climate change, we're all losers because of habitat destruction uh, and because of extreme weather events, because of uh, a, lot of, uh, uh, a lot of real estate and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, facilities becoming uninsurable. Um, Incidents of extreme storms, floods, tornadoes, etc. That's all on on the on the increase, and in that sense, we we all pay the price. But on the other hand, there will be definite winners and losers as far as 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 climate change proceeds. So, for instance, southern Europe will definitely be one of the losers because it will become extremely arid there, and there will be a lot of heat waves that will uh, kill a lot of people. Uh, southwestern United States and, and, and the, uh, uh, the west coast of the United States is definitely going to suffer. We already saw what happened in California and, and, and Oregon and Washington. Uh, it was a, pretty much a constant plume of smoke all through the summer. A lot of, a lot of uh, forested areas uh, just burnt up because there just isn't enough moisture there. Um, and in a lot of places, it will become impossible to grow food. One of those places at some point uh, will be California, which is uh, uh, one of the most intensively farmed areas uh, in the United States. Um, but they're also going to be winners. And one of those winners is Russia, which is now the largest grain producer in the world because global warming has made it possible to, to productively farm much further north than before. And the growing season is longer and more benign. There's more moisture, et cetera. So Russia is now the, the top grain exporter in the world uh, in, in some part thanks to climate change. Uh, Dimitri, I think we have to leave it there, but uh, I want to thank you for returning to our show and, and sharing your unique perspectives with our audience. My pleasure. Thank you.
Okay, we've been speaking with Dmitry Orlov, a writer and geopolitical analyst based in Moscow. You can read more of his articles at the site cluborlov.blogspot.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.